What do you do with a child who throws a temper tantrum at school? Not long ago, uh, our kids were sitting around a campfire with some friends who told uh, my children about what used to be done when kids threw temper tantrums at school. Uh, some instrument called the paddle and the principal's office, and my kids just listened with wide eyes, like they were listening to stories of some bygone era, some other alien planet. Of course, it maybe feels that way, because today our uh, things are a little bit different. If a young child begins to throw a temper tantrum in the middle of his class today, his teacher might make a few attempts to calm him down. If the child continues, then the teacher may be forced to turn to desperate measures. Of course, those desperate measures don't include a paddle or a principal. Often what will happen is the rest of the class will be told to line up and the rest of the class will leave the classroom while the child throwing a temper tantrum remains to vent his anger. A tantrum, I'm told, like this could continue for hours as the child is left to his own devices in the room. As long as he's not a harm to himself or others, he has free reign to vent his anger until the tantrum is over. Move on, children. There's nothing to see here. Johnny's just getting mad again today. I think many Christians deal with the anger of God in the Bible, much like our modern public schools deal with anger in the classroom. Uh-oh. God's throwing a tantrum again. Wrath, judgment, anger. Everybody up. Everybody move. Let's go to something comfortable like John 3.16. Nothing to see here. God's just angry again. Perhaps that's one reason why we spend so little time in the minor prophets. If you've been tracking with us the past few weeks, perhaps you've noticed that God, week after week, seems to be angry. This morning we're in the fourth of 12 minor prophets. And I assure you for the next nine sermons that this trend will continue. Move on, Christian. Nothing to see here. Is that the right way to approach God's anger? Is that the right way to think about it? I want to ask a question this morning from the book of Obadiah. Perhaps a question that you've already begun asking yourself as we've walked through the first three sermons in this series. Why does God seem so angry? Now, some would deny the question outright. Some might say, well, the God I worship isn't a God of anger. And if that's you, dear friend, I would, I would say to you with all, all the love and sincerity in my heart, the God you worship isn't God. That's not God. The God of the Bible, he reveals himself to us, and the Bible is very clear that God is a God that does have wrath and anger. 
You cannot read the Bible without coming across the wrath and anger of God. Is it difficult? Yes, but it's there. Another way someone might choose to respond to that question, why does God seem so angry? Someone else might say, well, God used to be angry, but he's not angry anymore. I mean, that's the Old Testament God. The Old Testament God is the God of anger and wrath, but the New Testament is the God of mercy and love. Kind of move on, children. There's nothing to see here. Let's go to the, the sweeter things, the pleasanter things. I would suggest to you, once again, this is a severe misreading of the Bible. If you read through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the entire Bible. You will find Jesus talking more about hell than perhaps any other subject. You will find that Jesus himself, meek and mild, gentle and lowly, is in fact the greatest theologian on the doctrine of hell. Test it and see if it's true. This is not to minimize or undermine any of the wonderfully merciful and gentle truths about Christ. They're all true, but so too is this. The God created the world and everything in it does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So how do we make sense of a God who seems angry? Why does God seem so angry? I believe that the, the book of Obadiah gives us a very helpful answer. Now, I want you to understand, God's anger is nothing like the tantrum-throwing child in kindergarten. God's anger is fierce, but it's settled. He doesn't throw tantrums. He doesn't fly off the handle. His anger is furious, but it's purposeful. He's not venting. He doesn't need to get anything out of his system. The message of Obadiah, I believe, demonstrates to us that God is angry because God is love. God is angry because God is love. So if you're not yet there, grab your Bible again and go to the book of Obadiah. A few hundred years before Obadiah prophesied, the prophet Joel prophesied in Joel 2 that the southern kingdom, Judah, would be destroyed by a great army if they didn't repent. Remember, uh, the nation of Israel has been split into two kingdoms after the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom is the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. And Joel warned in Joel 2 that the southern kingdom, Judah, is going to be destroyed if they don't repent. And we know from history and from the biblical account that in 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was sacked and devastated by the Babylonian army. Obadiah is prophesying after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. But he's not writing to the northern kingdom, and he's not writing to the southern kingdom. Obadiah's prophecy is in response to something else that happened while Judah was being destroyed. Obadiah writes to the kingdom of Edom. Edom, uh, the Edomite people were Judah's neighbors to the south. And if you were alive in Obadiah's day and you heard 
any mention of Edom and Israel, you would likely think Hatfield and McCoy. I mean, you would think like age-old family feud. This was a conflict that had persisted for centuries. It begins actually in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, Jacob has a wife, or uh, rather, uh, Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, and Rebecca is pregnant with twins. Remember? One is Jacob. And one is Esau. Jacob is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess who Esau is the father of? Entire Edomite people. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember the conflict, the contention in their relationship. Well, that contention, that conflict actually continues between the Edomite people and the Israelite people for over a thousand years. And there's all kinds of episodes in that conflict. We don't have time to hit them today. But the climax of that conflict occurred in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and destroyed the southern kingdom of Judah. Because as Jerusalem is being ransacked, the Edomite people are rejoicing. Like vultures hovering over an animal that's about to die. The Edomite people are hovering over Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. And as soon as Jerusalem falls, the Edomite people swoop in and they actually begin looting and rejoicing and celebrating as the southern kingdom of Judah falls. And Obadiah tells us that this makes God angry. You notice anything in the book of Obadiah, it's that God is angry. But I want you to notice in this message from Obadiah two reasons why God's anger is directed toward the Edomite people. And in those two reasons, I want you to see that God is angry because God is love. Number one, first reason for God's anger in Obadiah, God is angry because he loves his glory. God's love for his own glory is implied when you notice the first reason for God's anger against the Edomites. God is angry at Edom because Edom is proud. Why don't you notice Obadiah verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise again against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. There in verse 3, you see the reason for God's anger directed against the Edomite people. They are a proud people. If you continue reading, you'll notice a few reasons why the Edomite people were proud. They're, first of all, they're proud of their land. Verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock and your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Edomite people lived in a high plateau south of the Dead Sea, at some places, it was about 5,000 feet above sea level. So they're looking down on the kingdom of uh, Judah 
and they're proud. They feel impenetrable. They feel like they cannot be destroyed. And God says, you're up in an eagle's nest, but you're not higher than me. I'll bring you down. Edom's land cannot protect them from the anger of God. Now they're proud because of their possessions. Verse five, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged as treasures sought out. You know, the one thing that thieves and grape gatherers have in common in that day is that they wouldn't take everything. They would leave something behind. God says, when I come to destroy you, Edom, everything will be gone. You'll have nothing left. You can be proud in your possessions, but your possessions will not save you from the anger of God. That's what God is saying to Edom. They're proud of their friends. Look at verse seven. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. In other words, the Edomites feel like they're fine because they've got good diplomatic relationships with the kingdoms around them. But God says, they're going to deceive you. Your friends will not save you from the anger of God. Edom was proud of their wisdom. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau. Edom prided herself on her philosophy, on her wise men. In fact, if you read the story of Job, one of Job's counselors was a man named Eliphaz the Temanite, and Teman is a city in Edom. These wise counselors counseling Job, and they're proud of their great wisdom, but God says, your wisdom will not save you from my anger. Edom is proud of her strength. Verse 9, your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Strength will not save Edom from the anger of God. I want you to notice what's happening in the book of Obadiah so far. God's anger is rising in proportion to the pride of the Edomite people. Now I want you to think for just a second because you might be tempted to think, well, that's how he used to be. That's not how he is anymore. But all throughout the scripture, the Bible is clear. God hates pride. Whether you're eight years old or 80, God hates pride. Listen to Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Abomination, that's a word that, you, know, you hear something, you feel something, you see something, it makes you want to puke. It's disgusting. God says, pride is disgusting in my sight. It turns my stomach. Be assured, the proud will not be unpunished. Or James chapter 4, verse 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Imagine guys like, like, like a running back stiff-arming an oncoming defender. God, God stiff arms 
the proud and holds his arms out to welcome the humble. God hates pride. Now, here's the question I want you to ask. I want you to think through this with me. What is it about pride that fuels God's anger? Why is pride like throwing gasoline on the anger of God? Last Sunday was Mother's Day. So moms, um, imagine after our great, encouraging Mother's Day sermon. If you were here last week, you remember. If you weren't, check the website. Um, you go home and you enjoy family dinner with your family. And you're all sitting around the table. And they've prepared, maybe your husband's prepared you a wonderful dish. And you're all sitting there together. Everybody's together. And you look up at some moment in the dinner and you notice everybody at the table, everybody, youngest to oldest, is looking at a screen. Husband's got his phone. Teenage daughter's got her phone. Your young son's got his tablet. Every single one of them, moms, is looking not at you, interacting not with you, but with someone, something on a screen. All, all of us know what that feels like. All of us have been there. Here's the question. Is it right to be angry in that moment? Now, there's a way to respond sinfully in anger, but is there a just anger in that moment? I would suggest to you, yes, because in that moment, everyone around you is exchanging a, a, a real flesh and blood image bearer of God for an avatar on a screen. That's a bad trade, right? And then there's something within us that says, no, spend time with me. Quit looking at your phone, right? Anybody been there? Am I alone here? <laughs> okay, now, follow, follow me, brother, sister. There's something within us that knows that's not right. There's something within us that recoils when that happens. How much more should a holy God recoil when his creator, his created beings made in his image choose to devote their attention not to him, but to lesser things that he's created. See, God is angry at pride because he wants your focus to be on him. Listen to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God says, I am glorious. Focus on me. And pride says, I am glorious. Focus on me. Do you see why there's an issue here? Now, if you're tracking with me, the question, the objection that tends to rise in our minds is, wait a second, is God a megalomaniac? I mean, why is he insisting on being praised? I mean, why is he so needy? Why is he like that? A megalomaniac, think Nero, think Hitler, someone. This is somebody that is, is fantasized and obsessed with fantasies of their greatness. And they're obsessed by a need to be praised. They're obsessed with being great, but it's not enough to be great. You have to know I'm great. That's a megalomaniac. God is not 
a megalomaniac. Why? Because God's greatness is not a fantasy. His greatness, his greatness is real. It's, it's not imagined. It's not in his mind. He is great. Listen to Isaiah 46. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is great. Uh, we could spend the rest of our time talking about his greatness. Hopefully you see the point. Here's the second reason why God is not a megalomaniac. A megalomaniac needs your praise. God doesn't need your praise. You need to praise him. I want you to get that. That's huge. God does not need you. It's not about you. You need him. Listen to Acts 17. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God says, if I was hungry, would I tell you? God isn't in heaven wringing his hands. I hope she'll praise me today. No, you need to praise him. That's what you were made for. <laughs> so when our lives are focused on small things instead of his greatness, there is a holy and a righteous anger that swells up in him because he wants you to focus on the only thing that will truly give you joy, and that is him. God is angry because he loves his glory. Now, if you're in this room and you're an unbeliever, I'm gonna say this to you as clearly as I can. The greatest obstacle to you trusting Jesus is your pride. It's not an unanswered question. It's your pride. It's pride. Because the gospel says you're so bad that the cross is what you deserve. The gospel says your sin is so great that the cross was the only way. The gospel says the only way to come to God is with empty hands. Your pride won't let you do that. You will never trust Christ until you get your eyes off of your own glory and look to him and see his glory. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, let me ask you, where is pride still lurking in your heart? And notice I didn't ask you, is pride still lurking in your heart? I said, where is it lurking in your heart? Why? Because it's there. The Puritan preacher Thomas Hooker once said that if you could remove every vice out of your life and heart and mind, the last one to go would be what? Pride. It would be pride. And I would suggest to you, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, as most of us are, the pride that tends to cling to us so deeply is that spiritual pride that says, I figured it out. I'm one of the good guys. If only more people could be like me. Are you proud of your wealth, your skill, your career, your education, your political views? age, your sex, your race, your children, your personality, your social media influence? 
your holiness? Are you proud of your humility? A good doctor can love his patient and hate the cancer that's destroying her. If you're a Christian, God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And yet, in his love, he despises not you, but the pride in you that distracts you from him. And like a surgeon, he will cut it out of you, even though it might hurt. So God is angry because God is love. He, first of all, he loves his glory. Verse 10 in Obadiah's message marks the shift. In verses 1 to 9, God's anger burns because Edom is proud. In verse 10, God's anger burns for a different reason. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Why is God angry? Because of your violence to my people, your brother Jacob. So God is angry, number two, because he loves his people. God is angry because he loves his people. When America was attacked on September 11th, 2001, I still remember watching President George W. Bush that evening giving an um, address to the nation. And he called on the nation to mourn with what he called a quiet, unyielding anger. Was he right to call upon us to be angry? I would suggest to you that that anger it was not an anger because we didn't love, but because we did. If you truly love your people, then you will have anger directed towards that which would harm them. Every parent in the room understands that. So Obadiah shows us four sins that Edom committed against God's people, beginning in verse 11. First of all, they deserted their brothers. Verse 11, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You stood aloof. You could have helped and you didn't, he says. They deserted their brothers. Number two, they celebrated Jerusalem's destruction. Verse 12, do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. I wonder if any of us are tempted to delight in the downfall of our supposed enemies. That's what the Edomites did. Judah's burning and they're celebrating. Delighted over, their, over Jerusalem's destruction. Third sin is they looted Jerusalem's ruins. Again, like vultures swooping in to, to eat what remains of the decimated carcass. The Edomite people swooped in to loot as the Babylonians are destroying Jerusalem. These are their cousins coming in to steal and kick them while they're down. Verse 13, do not enter the, the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. The Edomites viewed Judah's fall as an opportunity for them to get ahead. How often do we do the same? 
fourth sin they committed against God's people was that they actually assisted the Babylonians. They assisted Judah's enemies. Look at verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So you've got to imagine Babylonian, Babylonian army swooping in, killing, slaughtering, kidnapping uh, people from the southern kingdom. And all of a sudden, an Edomite notices there's a Jew over there that just escaped. I'm going to grab him and deliver him to the Babylonians. They're helping. So God's anger burns. Think of it this way. Imagine you have a daughter living in an apartment in a big city. Uh, you hear she's been captured by a notorious group of traffickers. I just realized this sounds like Taken, Liam Neeson. If you haven't seen it, it's okay. Totally original plot here, folks. Didn't come up with this. <laughs> So she's been captured by a notorious group of traffickers. So you, you fly to the city as soon as you possibly can. You talk to people in her apartment building about what happened. And you learn something that absolutely unsettles you. You learn that her next door neighbors were with your daughter the night she was kidnapped. But they stood by and did nothing. In fact, they actually were giving the kidnappers high fives and cheering as they took your daughter away. At one point, your daughter was able to get out of their grasp and they grabbed her and handed her back to her captors. And then once she was gone, they went into her apartment and took her TV and jewelry out of her dresser and a couple other things. What would you feel towards those next door neighbors. Now, I'm not asking, you know, the right thing obviously is to forgive. We understand all that. I'm asking you, what would you feel in that moment? Would it be indifference or anger? I would suggest to you, the deeper the love for your daughter, the deeper would, would, uh, would rise your anger with what happened that night in her apartment so too with God. Because he loves his people so much, anyone or anything that would harm his people causes his anger to swell. Now, I want you to, I want you to let's just zoom out just a little bit and get the, the story of the Bible here for a second because I want you to understand that this conflict between God's people and their enemies has been as long as Adam and Eve fell since that moment. You go back to Genesis 3.15, God will look in the eyes of a serpent and he will say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God says to this scaly creature, there's going to be a conflict between you and my people, but I'm going to win. If you fast forward to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, there's a woman representing the nation of Israel, people of Israel, and the serpent here called a dragon. Listen to Revelation 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman, 
and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I want you to notice here in Revelation 12, the war is no longer against the ethnic Israel and the forces of darkness, but all who keep the testimonies of Jesus. So God's unabashed, unwavering love for his people is for you, Christian. You're including that. He loves you that much. Do you want a father who will protect you and even have anger rise up? against whatever would cause you lasting harm. That's the God we have. That's the God we have. From Edom until the New Jerusalem, there's an age-old conflict between God's people and everybody else. Now, I want to ask you, just before we conclude with the hope in Obadiah, and there is hope, I want to ask you just to think about two things with me this morning. Is your God a God that is sometimes angry? Is that the God that you see and worship in the scriptures? If not, I would suggest to you that you are not reading and believing the whole counsel of God's word. We don't like to talk about his anger. We don't sing a... We, we don't sing a lot of songs, angry are you, Lord, you know? We don't sing that because it's uncomfortable. It's hard, but it's true. It's not the God that you see in the Bible. Does your theology include a theology of the wrath of God? If not, I would suggest to you that you need to dive deeper into God's word and see his anger. And I would also suggest to you, dear friend, a God that does not get angry at what harms his people is not a God worth worshiping. I don't want a God that sits idly, indifferently by why his people suffer. That is not the God that we worship if you follow the God of the Bible. Here's a second question for you to just think through and chew on this week. What makes you angry? I know what made me angry this past week. My son, I didn't ask him if I could say this, but he won't care. He loves it when I talk about him in sermons. He threatened me the other day, and he said he was going to take one of uh, Ezekiel's dirty diapers and rub it on my pillow. That's a serious threat. <laughs> it's a serious threat. And the other night, I went upstairs, and... Um, all the kids, I mean, they just had this look on their faces like they had all planned something. And Jonah came out of hiding with this wadded up diaper in his hand and he starts rubbing it on my pillow. And if you want to talk to Phoebe after the service, she has the best impression of what dad did in that moment because it was angry. It was an angry response and, and I said something like, stop it, Jonah! Like that, probably, maybe a little louder. <laughs> I don't like dirty diapers on my pillow, okay? It's a thing, it's a, I'm sorry. <laughs> Turns out that this was all a big scam and it just happened to be a couple of clean diapers lumped up into another clean diaper that was wrapped on my pillow. So everything was fine, except for dad's anger that started to fester in that moment. 
that anger that arose out of my heart in that moment was not an anger because God's glory was being threatened or diminished. It was not an anger swelling up in me because God's people were being harmed. It was an anger in my heart because I was being inconvenienced. I think if we're honest with ourselves, far too often that is the anger that we hold. Think about Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find a couple of instances where he gets angry. Probably the most famous is when he enters the temple, brandishes a whip, right? And, and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he, he says, my father meant this to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of thieves. What is Jesus angry about? God's glory. God's glory is being tarnished and God's people, God's people are being harmed in the process. That's the anger of Jesus. That's the anger that the Christian should have. That's what should make us angry. Is it what makes you angry? I told you there's hope in Obadiah. All this anger swelling up in the heart of God. Here's the big question. What is God going to do about it? Look at verse 15. Obadiah chapter one, verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Notice, he doesn't say upon Edom. He's widening the scope here. It's not just Edom that will face the wrath and the judgment of God, but all nations. There is coming a reckoning and everyone will appear before the judgment seat of God. And then he says, verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. What a horrifying thought. The day of the Lord, judgment is, is coming for all nations, all peoples. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're an unbeliever, God is being patient with you right now. Please hear me. God's patience is perfect, but it's not permanent. It's perfect, but it's not permanent. In other words, there will come a day when Christ returns and there will be no more time left for you to repent and believe. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe, to turn and trust him. So on July 8, 1741, Jonathan Edwards stood in a Connecticut pulpit and preached the most famous sermon in American history. You probably heard it, maybe read it in school. It's titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. At one point in that sermon, he talks about God holding sinners in his hands like one holds a spider over the fire. It's horrifying metaphors in that sermon. They had the same preacher who had no qualms about preaching about the wrath and the anger of God, also said this about God. That's, that same man, Jonathan Edwards said, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamities of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased that they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. 
Here's what he's saying. Naturally, out of the heart of God flows love and mercy and grace and kindness and peace. His anger is provoked by something. Hebrews talks about about the importance of church attendance. And it says, we gather so that we can provoke one another to love and good works. You have to be provoked to do good. God has to be provoked to have anger. It, it, is, it is despising his glory that provokes this strange work of his wrath and anger. It is afflicting his people that provokes God's anger. So if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in what Jesus did on the cross, that on the cross, God sent his son to absorb all that anger as a substitute in your place, then God has no more anger left for you, Christian. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice in verse 17 what God promises his people, those who call upon him and are saved, as Joel said, those who repent and are restored as Amos prophesied. Obadiah 1, 17, in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And if you skip down to the last phrase in the book of Obadiah, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So God promises his people five things. There will be a people, those who escape the anger of God. There will be a place. They're gonna dwell in Mount Zion. That's where Jerusalem was. And then in verses uh, 18 to 20, he gives the dimensions of the new Jerusalem. And it's big. And then there's gonna be uh, this purity in this place. It's gonna be a holy city, he says. And then there'll be protection You're going to have your own possessions, he says. No one's going to take it from you. I believe that these five promises are pointing forward to something that the Apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, we said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Just like Obadiah, there's a people, there's a place, there's a purity, there's protection, and then there's a throne, there's a king. Obadiah is pointing us to the new heavens and the new earth that we will experience if our faith is in Christ. So how can you have this, dear friend? John continues in verse six. And he, that's Jesus, said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
There are only two ways to live, brother, sister, friend. Only two ways. Live, live for yourself, live for your sin, and you will have it in the end. Your deeds will return on your own heads, as Obadiah says. Or you can trust Christ, thirst for him, the one who gives living water that satisfies the one whose holy anger is fierce, but it's a blessing to those who belong to him. Jesus never brandished a whip against his disciples. He loves you. You belong to him. You thirst for him. He will give you living water. You can't pay for it. You can only receive it as a gift. If you're in this room and you've never done that, we'd invite you to talk to the Christian that you came with. Or head to that white flag after the service about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We'd love to talk to you more. But if you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, notice Jesus says, the one who conquers, our calling is to persevere until the end when we will see his face. Would you pray with me?